You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. It is probably the single brand most associated with Canada. It is also the single brand most associated with colonization, with stolen land, and with the genocide of Indigenous peoples. Yeah, the Hudson's Bay Company has a long legacy. But for how much longer? For years now, Bay stores across the country have been shrinking or vanishing entirely. The company went public, then private again. Its online shopping portal has not come close to matching its retail heyday. And of course, the pandemic further shrunk already dwindling retail traffic. So what does HBC have? Well, real estate. A lot of real estate. Some of the biggest and most iconic downtown footprints in the country's biggest cities. It has far more retail space than it has things to sell and people to sell them. And even with the pandemic hurting the value of downtown space, it is still worth millions upon millions of dollars. So what does the future hold for the Bay? One flagship store has already been given away, either as part of the company's reconciliation journey or as a tax write-off, depending on who you ask. Other buildings may soon follow. Where will this brand exist in 10 years? Will it exist? Should it exist at all? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Don Gilmore is an award-winning Canadian novelist, journalist, and children's book author. He dug into the Bay, its legacy, and its future for The Walrus. Hey, Don. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Why don't we start with this? Because this is an interesting story that I didn't know before I read your piece. Can you tell us about the long decline and the eventual offloading of the downtown HBC store in Winnipeg? What happened to that store and how did it all end? Well, the Hudson Bay store, uh, you know, Eaton's in the Hudson Bay used to be on Portage Avenue in Winnipeg. And they really dominated the retail landscape. Uh, I grew up in Winnipeg and those were the two stores that virtually everyone went to. And then with the advent of malls in the suburbs, the downtown started to decline. And, you know, Eaton's, as you know, disappeared. And uh, in its place, there's now the arena for the Jets. And the Bay just kind of quietly withered over the last, I would say, probably last 15 years or so. But it got to a point by 2019 where it really looked like this sort of dismal Soviet-era shopping experience where you know the half the floor would be boarded up with plywood and you know you'd some floors were empty and so it really was just kind of dwindling to nothing and then finally shut down and what happened to that store or should i uh say the retail space that that store occupied well the store itself is a beautiful old beaux-arts building and uh, and it's huge uh, it's five stories and each floor is 100,000 square feet. So it's this massive building. What happened was the governor uh, of Hudson Bay Company um, gifted the store to the Southern Chiefs Organization, which is an alliance of a, a number of indigenous nations in Manitoba. So they essentially received this as a gift. Now, we could talk about this part of the story for quite a long time, and I, I want to make sure that we cover it. But 
maybe if you could explain just a little bit about how the legacy of the Hudson's Bay Company is tied so closely to colonization and why something like a gift to the Southern Chiefs is kind of necessary, even if it's a drop in the bucket. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, Indigenous groups who perceive the Hudson Bay Company as one of the primary forces of colonization. And, you know, it's it began in 1670. And as I mentioned the piece, it actually, the, it was pitched by Radisson and Grosselier to King Charles II in 1650 or 65, when the bubonic plague was happening in London. And so this idea that it, you know, it started essentially as a land deal in, in the middle of a plague and, and may end that way. Charles signed off on this, not knowing, uh, not having a clue how big this land was because, you know, he it hadn't been mapped. So you had the Hudson Bay Company coming to the West primarily and setting up all these forts and trading posts and essentially, you know, taking advantage uh, of the indigenous people and making huge profits. And so uh, that continued. I mean, the Hudson Bay didn't get out of furs till the 1990s. So mm-hmm. I think there's a sense of resentment of, uh, you know, centuries of being taken advantage of. And in effect, you know, Hudson Bay Company owned all of the Canadian West, uh, essentially. So that was also, as you would imagine, a a sticking point. And we'll come back towards the end of this conversation and kind of talk about how this changes moving forward and and what might happen to HBC or or some of its retail stores, but maybe to move forward centuries, I guess. In modern times, at its peak— as a retailer, a physical retailer, how large and prestigious has Hudson Bay Company been? Well, you know, it had a long run as an incredibly prestigious uh, organization. And I mean, it was ubiquitous. It was all across the country. Everyone, you know, in terms of its brand and long before we used the word brand as much as we do now, but it, you know, it, it was an incredibly successful brand. And when Baker bought it, Richard Baker, who was a New York developer, bought it in 2008. And at that time, he bought it as a private company. And they were still uh, doing extraordinary business at that point. I mean, it it was, I, I think in 2008, they had a, a little under $2 billion in sales. And he hired Bonnie Brooks to run the operation because Baker himself had no retail background. And he hired Bonnie Brooks and... When she left in 2016, their sales were over 14 billion a year. So it was a huge enterprise, even recently. I'm glad that you mentioned uh, sort of the takeover by Baker and HBC going public. When did the decline that we've seen, and we're about to talk about just just how much it's declined, when did that really begin? Can we pinpoint when and why? Well, I think there was a number of forces at work. And so when it was at its height in 2016, there was other, you know, department stores were were essentially declining in both the U.S. and Canada. So, you know, we have Eaton's disappearing. As soon there was Sears, Simpsons, you know, Zellers. A lot of these department stores were disappearing from the retail landscape. And in the States, there was um, essentially, you know, a diminished department store presence. And so they had this sort of last gasp in 2016. The next year, though, like within three years, the Hudson Bay was down to 
5 billion. So from 14 billion to 5 billion in sales in three years. And I think what you saw was a different kind of retail landscape and also the advent of online shopping. And the Bay wasn't brilliant at jumping into the online part of it. What did Baker do uh, with the company during the 2010s? And and what did he do when it kind of became obvious that this was in decline? What happened was, you know, he was under pressure because it was a public company. He was under pressure from the shareholders saying the share price is going down. We're losing money and you need to monetize some of this real estate because the Bay, you know, still owned a number of their stores and, and some beautiful stores like the downtown Toronto store on Queen and Young Street, for example. So he sold the downtown Toronto store to Cadillac Fairview for $650 million and then leased back the space. And so he started the real estate aspect was, I mean, it was always there I, I, as an underlying idea because Baker himself had said, you know, we're not a department store. We're essentially a real estate company. Mm. And so that was one of the big dominoes to fall. Um, but he was still under pressure from all these uh, shareholders. So he, you know, teamed up with some equity companies and WeWork and some other people and then bought it out and it went private again. When we talk about the real estate that company owns or owned, can you give us a sense of the expanse of those holdings? I mean, you mentioned the Winnipeg store, obviously, uh, where we are in Toronto. Everyone knows the gigantic downtown store. What else do they own? Well, they've got 86 stores in Canada. And of those, only 14 are either owned or have ground leases. And a ground lease is you know, a long lease of between, say, 50 and 100 years. And all the rest are on kind of short or shorter term leases, at least, and, you know, often in malls. And you, we're seeing some of those stores, for example, the one at the corner of Young and Bloor, which is now yeah, just disappeared recently. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we'll see some of those disappear when the leases are up or when they can sublease. And then it's a question of what do you do with the really valuable real estate, like the Vancouver building is beautiful, the Calgary building is, Montreal and they have plans to develop some of those buildings where you would be able to build up and put in, you know, really nice office space that would be geared towards tech companies, for example. And so that's going to be, and, and then you would diminish the real estate component in that building. You'd keep maybe, you know, I don't know, two floors of the Montreal store or the Calgary store, and then you would have the rest of it as office space. Do we have a sense, I guess maybe not an explicit sense because they're a private company again now, but what the cash value of all that real estate is? And and as a caveat to that, is the Bay's entire value now tied up in real estate? Does their retail operation drive any significant revenue when we talk about like the overall value of the company? Uh, it's a good question because they're very coy uh, with those figures, as you w- would guess. There was an estimate in 2020 from a real estate company that suggested that the worth of their holdings was $3.6 billion, uh, and they had about $1.5 billion in mortgages. And it's difficult to say in the, you know, in the two years since, what's, you know, the real estate has generally gone down. And you see in cities like Montreal or New York, for example, where they also have, he's got holdings in New York, where you have very high vacancy rates for office space. So now it's a question of, you know, the retail arm isn't doing brilliantly, but how well is the office space going to do? Yeah, that was my question, because in certainly downtown in every major city right now, there's 
there's reams of empty physical retail space, right? And I'm not sure how a company can survive by making plans to monetize that space when there doesn't look to be a ton of opportunities to monetize it. Well, one thing that may happen in their favor is I talked to a developer in uh, Manhattan who owned a lot of office space, and he had said that there has been a flight to quality, as he termed it, which was, you know, if you have newer buildings with, you know, much better facilities and things like, for example, you know, in older buildings, certainly in Manhattan, I'm sure in uh, Toronto, you have ventilation systems where essentially you're circulating air you know, throughout the entire building and everyone is breathing everyone else's air. And mm. no one really gave that much thought until the pandemic. And now it's a, uh, it's a big issue. And you do have really sophisticated new buildings that have uh, much better ventilation systems where you're not circulating the air all through the building. You know, they, if they do convert, say, the Calgary and Vancouver and Montreal stores and, you know, have a, a kind of beautiful high-tech space that's tailored for those industries, they may, you know, draw people away from existing, you know, older buildings. It's a crapshoot, but that's something that could work out for them. Let's go back to the Winnipeg building, since it's the one they've totally given away. What has happened to it since it was given to the Southern Chiefs? What has it become or what will it become? Well, it hasn't become anything at, uh, at this point. The idea is it's going to become a kind of multi-use building that'll have uh, an indigenous museum, child care. I think there's going to be elder care as well as apartments. So the challenge is, I mean, architecturally, there's a number of challenges, one of which is, you know, who exactly is the client? Because Ostensibly, it's the Southern Chiefs, but that's a big group, and there's a lot of um, different interests that are involved under that umbrella. And you know, who has a say in what goes forward in terms of design and use? And then, because it's being largely funded by three levels of government, you know, do they have a voice in this as well? So, if you're the architecture firm right now, it's a group in Winnipeg called Number Ten, and. You know, I think there's a possibility of doing something really extraordinary with that space. It's a beautiful old building. The idea is that because of the floor plans are so vast, you'd have to have a uh, atrium in the center to bring in light. And they've got the challenge of there's asbestos embedded in the floors, and that's a- another problem. Hmm. So there's huge challenges architecturally. But if it does all work out, it could be a, a fantastic facility. And it's in a, this great location. So it really is what happens in the design phase, which is going to be, and also, you know, whatever they budget for, you can you can almost bet it's going to go beyond that. So that's going to be the next issue. Would you go back to the government and say we need another $40 million? When HBC gave that building away, you know, it, it was done as part of their truth and reconciliation uh, journey. How directly did they address the company's legacy when that happened. And I'm just interested in, you know, the rest of Canada is coming to terms with this. I'm interested in how directly the company has. I mean, they did, I guess, face this head on in a sense. But, you know, I'm approaching this with, I guess, a bit of cynicism in that this is really, you know, an extraordinary PR opportunity. And, you know, they're giving away a building that they tried to give away previously to the University of Winnipeg, which is right across the street. 
and uh, University of Winnipeg turned it down because it just was too expensive to modify and run. So this is sort of, you know, plan B and it looks great, but understandably there's, you know, indigenous groups in Winnipeg who are saying this is essentially just HBCs offloading a toxic asset. You know, it, it had, um, there was property taxes owing of over 300,000. It had died as a retail venue. And even though you could build above there, uh, because the foundations actually go down, I think a hundred feet, you could probably build a, you know, 30 floor office building or a condo building above it if you wanted to. But that area still is in transition, as they say. And so it's not a place, I think, that a New York developer would want to be investing. So really, he's kind of got the best of both worlds. He gets rid of this toxic asset. You know, he publicly announces that this is part of the kind of reconciliation. Right. Justin Trudeau shows up at the ceremony and um, where they're, you know, officially giving it to the Southern Chiefs and says this, this is this wonderful act of reclamation. So I think, you know, as a PR stunt, it was brilliant. What about the HBC brand itself as uh, its physical retail footprint disappears? Will it survive as an online retailer? I mean, as you mentioned, they were kind of late to that party. They certainly are incessant with their email appeals uh, about the Bay Days. But, you know, how much cachet, I guess, does this centuries-old brand have in the fast fashion online Instagram type of uh, retail? Yeah, I think they're. I think they're having a lot of difficulty, and uh, I think if they were to go exclusively online, and you know, they uh, Baker owns Saks as well, and as you know, in Toronto, the downtown flagship store is divided vertically into half as Saks and half as HBC. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, Saks he's now spun off the Saks online as a separate company, basically, and so there are observers, retail and you know, real estate observers, and New York saying this is just part, this is the beginning of the end, that Saks will become simply an online presence and they'll be able to sell whatever real estate they can that Saks is inhabiting. I think it would be tough for the Bay to survive. I know Baker's original plan was that because they had so many stores and they were spread across the country and that most of the country's population is within something like, you know, two hour drive of any Bay store that they would be able to use the stores themselves as kind of warehouses and you, and you could send out things and get them there quicker than Amazon could, for example. I don't know that that has come to pass or not, but I think as an online presence, you know, I'm of a certain age and I have a, a, you know, a nostalgic relationship with the Bay, but you know, even I'm uh, not really shopping there. And um, I think for younger people, it's, you know, not on the radar. So that leads to my last question. If and when uh, the company does disappear, you know, the buildings, the brand, everything associated with the retail part of the Bay, how should Canadians feel about that? You know, we've talked about a horrific legacy of colonization. At the same time, there are people of generations of Canadians who have grown up with the Bay being the centerpiece of Canadian retail, really? Like, how how do we talk about that legacy if it disappears? Well, that's going to be an interesting discussion because I think we're going to see, you know, at least three sort of distinctive responses. And the first, I think, from many Indigenous groups, I would guess they're going to be 
if not celebrating, then uh, they won't be sad to see HBC disappear. Good riddance. And um, yeah, exactly. And I think there there's a handful of us who there's a kind of nostalgic sense of we remember it fondly for you know completely different reasons. But I think the main response might end up being indifference. You know that it could quietly slip away, and a lot of people wouldn't notice and it, that's a bit sad in a way but it, it that could be in fact what happens john thank you so much for this it's a fascinating story about a company with a legacy whatever else you might say about it well thank you for inviting me don gilmore writing in the walrus that was the big story for more head to the big story podcast.ca you can always find us on twitter at the big story fpn or you can email us hello at the big story podcast.ca you can call us, too, and leave a voicemail, 416-935-5935. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a safe weekend, and we'll talk Monday.